The Bible warns us greatly against love of the world. And that's what our passage this morning is about. It's a sober text, but it's also really encouraging because it explains to us what the world is like. In fact, the, these last chapters of Revelation until we get to the 19th chapter are dark because sin is real, evil is great, and God judges it, and there's the darkness. But there's also brightness after the darkness, and Christ is that brightness, and He is our hope. This passage is about a woman seated on a beast. So let's read Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. So here, one of these seven angels who we saw last week in Revelation 16 is pouring out the bowls of God's judgment on the earth, the bowls of his wrath during the whole time of the new covenant and culminating in final judgment. One of these angels says, let me show you more distinctly what's happening in the final judgment. Let me show you how God judges the world. So he's focusing in really on the last two bowls, which are Armageddon and which are the final judgment. And when we look at this text, we see that it's, it's a battle of truth. And we saw that last week, that the battle of Armageddon according to Revelation 16, verses 13 and 14, says that world powers will speak lies. What's the battle? Speech, above all. Then persecution of God's people. But this is a war for the mind. It's a war over truth. It's a war over right and wrong. And it's a war that, where the evil one tries to confuse us and seduce us through words. And, and of course, seduces the wicked as well. And so then this angel says, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the king of the earth have, kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So the angel here is giving us this context in which Christ will judge the world. This is the context. There is a great prostitute or harlot. And this prostitute is a metaphor for all worldly seduction. It certainly includes sexual immorality, but it's much broader. It's all worldly seduction and temptation to false worship, which means to love anything in this world more than Jesus. And so it shows us, though, that there's two kinds of people who have committed immorality with this prostitute. On the one hand, the kings of the earth have done it. So the powerful have been seduced by the world. On the other hand, all ordinary dwellers on earth have committed immorality with her. So every, the masses, the earth dwellers, so the great and the small have all been seduced and into temptation and into actually committing immorality with this prostitute. It's the whole world. Now the angel 
takes John to actually see the prostitute. And in verse 3, John says, And he carried me away by the Spirit into a wilderness. What's a wilderness? If we were to look up wilderness in the Bible, it's a place of temptation. It's a place where there are demonic spirits. It's a place of trial and difficulty. It's also, interestingly enough, a place where God protects his people. Because you remember what happened in the wilderness. God fed the people of Israel in the wilderness with manna from heaven. The, the, cloud, of, uh, the cloud went, went guided them by day and the pillar of fire by night. So God guided them, he fed them, and yet they were attacked by their enemies. God defended them. But there's persecution there and yet protection. So this is where this woman is found and it's this time of the new covenant that we're in right now. And this, these verses show us five things about her. So let's keep reading. Carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. So the beast is apparently standing on many waters. So you have a woman seated on a red beast who's standing on many waters, which is the whole earth. And this beast, it says in verse 3, was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. So take a second and try to get that picture. Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great. That's her name. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So five things. First, her name. Verse 5 says, on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now, her, her name is called a mystery because formerly it was concealed, but now it's revealed. That's what mysterion means through the Bible. In other words, this isn't her real name. She goes by many names. All through history, many names. Only once was she ever actually called Babylon. But she is Babylon, the same spirit of old. She is the life and spirit of worldly culture, of sinful civilization. She is awash in sexual immorality, greed, covetousness, rebellion, theft, deception, murder. There's nothing new under the sun. What has been will be, and what is will be again when it comes to these things. The world is broken, it's fallen. What happens when you, when you build a civilization of sinners, of people who are under the curse of Adam, who have fallen in Adam, and they have a sinful nature? It is inevitable what will happen every time they build a city. First time it happened was Cain. Cain built the city. What was the city? city of pleasure and music and fun, but also sexual immorality and murder. That was the first city. And then every city since then, every great civilization since then, when sinners get together and build a culture, includes these elements, and it gets worse and worse over time. Also, think of King Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon the Great. What was that? Well, great wealth, power, pleasure, culture, but a place of decadence and corrupt powers. 
And so this woman's name is Babylon the Great, which refers to sinful worldly culture all around the world at all times. But second, notice where she is seated. Verse 3 says she is seated on the scarlet beast, a red beast. Why is he red? Red is the color of the dragon. And the dragon, according to Revelation, is Satan. There's a satanic power and influence behind her. This beast is, is always associated in Revelation with the power of civil authority when it becomes tyrannical and controlling. That's what the beast is. So the earthly power, government, when it begins to become tyrannical and controlling. And this beast has blasphemous names. Well, what is a, blasph- what is a blasphemy? It's, I'm God. That's how it blasphemes. That's the little horns in Daniel. They're squeaking. They're the authority. This beast claims authority for itself puts itself in the place of God. Now, notice the relationship, though, between the prostitute and the beast. The prostitute is riding on the beast. So a sinful worldly culture influences and promotes sinful, wicked civil government. The the prostitute is riding it for now. Where do businessmen, wicked businessmen, criminals, rich people, powerful people, as well as wicked citizens find the power and civilization they need to indulge their sins and get away with it? Well, they have to get the government on their side. And so they rule in partnership. And this is why the prostitute is riding the beast. Sinful worldly culture and wicked corrupt government are in collusion. That's what ancient Babylon was. That's what ancient Rome was as it corrupted. It had a wicked, corrupt culture and a corrupt civil government. Now, you might think, and we we looked at this in Sunday school, but that in light of these realities, Christians should just disobey the civil government whenever possible. But remarkably, Paul told the Romans to obey the tyrannical dictator Caesar as long as Caesar didn't require Christians to sin. So that's the second thing about this prostitute. She's sitting on the beast, the power of civil government. The third thing about this beast that we see, so we've seen her name, we've seen where she's seated. The third thing is she's highly seductive. If you look at how she's dressed in verse 4, she is arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. The point is she's very outwardly attractive. Now, this purple, scarlet, gold, and jewels are symbols of economic wealth. Uh, And you can see that if you were to look up those terms in Revelation, you'll see it is tied to economy. So there's some connection here between this decadence and and affluence and human economy and and, uh, material prosperity. She's an emblem of that. And here's how that works in society. She's saying this. She's tempting you. She's saying... Join me and you can have wealth like I do. Compromise truth and righteousness. You'll be rich. Take advantage of the weak and the ignorant. It's their own fault if they can't see that deal isn't in their favor. Little dishonesty, theft. 
neglect of other responsibilities is nothing compared to the wealth that will get you. It's a worthwhile trade. Come on, cut some corners ethically. Get ahead. Break some of God's commandments. Come on, won't hurt. Jesus forgives. You've worked so hard. You deserve to relax with a little selfish and sinful immorality. You deserve this. The world is seductive. It tells you that you can have your sinful appetites and there will be no consequences. Only a reward. You can live well in your sins. Go ahead, chase your lustful desires and all will be well. You can have all the things I have, says the world. Now, you contrast this woman and her adornment with the adornment of Christ's bride in Revelation. It's a very interesting contrast. You have this prostitute and then you have the bride of the Lord Jesus. And the world's adornment is merely external with riches and fame. The world has no godly character no heart of true love. It's instead selfishness and prideful. Self-seeking, willing to hurt others for self. The world's heart is, we can get along as long as you scratch my back hard enough. It's a trade. It's not love. It's pride. It's selfishness. The world has no inward beauty of love and goodness, but Revelation 19.8 describes the bride of Jesus, the true church, and how she is adorned. And it says, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So instead of all these colors and economic trade and prosperity, it's just white linen, like a wedding dress is what it was actually. And, it, and, and this fine linen, it says, is the righteous deeds of the saints. So she adorns herself with righteous deeds. What are righteous deeds? It's keeping the commandments of Christ. What is that? Love expressed in obedience to his good law. That when you love another, you humble yourself and you tell them the truth in love. You don't lie to them to manipulate them. When you have righteous deeds, you don't murder them with your words to punish them and get them to see who's boss. Instead, you bless them with your words. You don't steal and take and use from others. Instead, you sacrifice yourself and you give and you don't demand to be served. You treat them the way Christ treats you. And so Christ's bride is adorned with humble, loving, faithful, holy, good works. What's the heart of the bride of Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's how she's adorned. That's her beauty. Her brightness is in her good works of love to God and to others. And so the third thing we've seen about this prostitute is she is clothed in a highly seductive way, but it's purely external. It's all outward ambiance. There's no heart there. The fourth thing about this prostitute is she's holding a golden cup. Do you see that in verse 4? It says she's holding in her hand a golden cup. Now, what would you expect would be in a golden cup? Maybe delicious drink. I mean, you would think that the drink in a cup so bright and beautiful as a golden cup would be luscious. It'd be the the best drink of all time. 
But what drink is in here? Instead, it says it's full of horrible impurities. Just imagine. It's a putrid drink. The cup is full of some kind of dark liquid with things floating in it. It smells rotten and sour. This is a drink offered by the prostitute. First, she attracts you with her outward beauty. She lures you then to drink of her abominations. Now, that word abomination refers to things that are um, highly offensive to God. So perversions, sins, but disordered types of sins, horrible sexual perversions, even occult practices and the worship of the devil himself, those things are included But this word impurities is more general, and it just refers to all sin. William Hendrickson, one commentator on this passage, says, whatever is used by the world to turn believers away from their God is in this cup. Pornographic literature, sports in which one becomes completely absorbed, luxuries, worldly fame and power, the lusts of the flesh, and so on. It includes things that are bad in themselves as well as things that become bad because one does not view them as a means but as an end in themselves. But when you go to this prostitute and actually drink the contents of her cup, this putrid, impure cup, it makes you sick doesn't nourish you, doesn't provide health for your body. It's not good for you. And that's what the Bible teaches about the sins of worldliness. The sins of the world attract you. At first, those sins feel good or they wouldn't be attractive. They stimulate your bodily senses and stir up your immediate gratifications. But one day, beloved, you will suffer consequences in this world and ultimately in the next. People think they can get away with worldliness because there's not an immediate consequence. I mean, if you put your hand on a stove and you burn your hand, you know not to do that. But worldliness isn't like that. You can get away with it day after day, week after week, and then it bites hard. You don't get away with it in this world, but worst of all, you don't get away with it in the next. It's a trap to lull you into a false sense of security till you're enslaved turns to ash in your mouth, sorrows, griefs, disappointments, dissatisfaction, feelings of worthlessness and being used and using others and self-hatred and confusion and every imaginable suffering comes in the wake of worldly sin. Worst of all, those who indulge their worldly appetites, this is the worst thing, they numb their consciences to knowing the love of Jesus. His great love for us, joy in Him, life in Him. They harden and callous themselves to Christ, who is so good. That's why in 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17, the Bible warns us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. 
and the world is passing away along with its desire, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And why does God tell us this? Because he loves us. These words might sting and might be uncomfortable, hard to hear. You might not even wish you had to listen to that this morning, but it's here out of love. Because Christ is better. He is life. This is death. He is all, beloved. Christ is all, and he alone can satisfy. And so there we see this prostitute is holding this golden cup full of putrid impurities. But fifth, it says she hurts God's people. This is what she actually does. She hurts God's people. Verse 6 says, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So this worldly culture, the sinful society, hurts God's people. And it hurts God's people in two ways. One is obvious. The first way is through persecution. What happens when the church, when God's people refuse to participate in moral evil in societies that are wicked? The wicked don't appreciate it. The wicked need you to celebrate their evil with them. The wicked demand that you accept, celebrate their right to practice their evil and that you go with them in it. There's a small metaphor of this in Potiphar and his, remember Potiphar's wife? She tried to seduce Joseph and when Joseph said, I'm not doing that, remember what she did? She falsely accused him, had him thrown in prison. Why? Well, because she couldn't be the one who was unrighteous or ended up with a penalty here. It was going to be him. That's a small picture of how the world system persecutes Christians, and Christians make worldly society feel guilty just through their preaching of the love of Jesus, redemption in him, and living godly lives. Richard Phillips says this, persecution has spread over all the world today, just as it loomed over John's churches and appeared throughout the early centuries of the church. And I found this an interesting sentence, because I, I believe it's true based on my own research as well. He says, more Christian blood was spilled in the 20th century than any previous century, the 1900s. And the 21st century is seeing Christian martyrdom reach new heights. Persecution is not dying out. It's growing all around the world, even as the church itself grows. And it's true that persecution deals a blow against the church. It hurts the world attacks us and hurts God's people, but persecution also purifies the church. It strengthens the church. And so in one way, you could consider that when the prostitute persecutes the church, it actually backfires on her because the church is purified and strengthened. But there's a second way she hurts the church. It's even worse. It's much more effective. This is a more deadly attack upon the church. The second way this prostitute hurts and attacks the church is through moral corruption from the inside. She infiltrates the visible church. It's her most effective attack. Do you remember in the Old Testament when Balak, um, the Midianite or the Moabite king, wanted to harm the people of Israel? And he called up Balaam and he said, How can we hurt the Israelites? And Balaam says, well, I'm not allowed to curse them. 
But then Balaam comes up with a better idea. He says, hey, send in the daughters of Moab to seduce them in their camp. And Balak said, hey, good idea. And he did it, and it worked. This, I submit, is the greatest danger of all. Today, professing Christians are being seduced by the world. Godless ideas and ideologies, wicked ethical structures. So there's a new liberalism of false social justice. There's a prosperity gospel which says, do right, act right, God will make you rich. There's moral therapeutic deism. You say, what is that? Well, here's what it is. God exists to make you feel better, to bless your life in a temporal sense, and in particular your feelings. But more than that, I believe Joel Beakey gets it right. He's, he quotes A.W. Tozer as saying this, it is scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a church meeting where God is the only attraction. Then Beakey says this, and he's right on. Something else must be offered to entice people to come to church today, whether music, celebrity, guests, movies, special programs for young people, and the like. You've got to have more than God. Beloved, this worldly prostitute has infiltrated and enticed the church, and it is causing great harm. So the fifth thing about this prostitute is she hurts God's people and weakens them. So that's the nature of the prostitute seated on the beast. But then at the end of verse 6, we see John's response to the vision. It's an interesting response. It says, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. Now, this word translated marveled could be translated wondered or even admired. This is the Apostle John looking at this woman seated on a beast. She is beautiful and powerful. She is winsome and attractive. And John was, the Bible says, impressed. For a moment, he may have been even a little attracted because of her glorious beauty and strength. You know, even the saints can stand in awe of Vanity Fair to look at it in all of its glorious greatness and complexity and beauty and shimmering, shining lights and attractions and lusts and satisfaction. And look, they're all getting away with it. Look at what they're doing. They're having so much fun. Maybe you know what that's like. At times you might be tempted to feel that Christ and his kingdom is small and nothing and can't be having as much fun as the world. Can't be as satisfying as the world. But this angel is about to reveal who that woman is. In verse 7, John says, But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? What is so impressive? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. This is a gentle rebuke, even to the Apostle John. He's saying, John, why are you in awe of that? Why are you impressed? What are you afraid of? What are you attracted to here? Let me show you what's really going on. So you want the veil to be peeled back and see what's actually happening? This is the judgment of God descending upon the world. That's what it is. In verse 8, the angel says, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and 
this is key, go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So this angel is telling John, there's reasons you shouldn't marvel at her. And John needs to pay attention not just to the prostitute, but to what she's riding on. You need to pay attention to that. She's riding on a beast. This is a, the power of worldly kingdom. Don't miss that. Here's a couple of reasons you shouldn't be so impressed. First, the beast will go to destruction. And it says, the angel says that the beast was in the past, not in the present, but will be again in the future. That's Babylon. Literal Babylon was in the past. Literal Babylon is not in the present, but Babylon will arise again. That's what he's saying. The angel is saying that history repeats itself. Each historic empire has arisen and been destroyed, and the future great manifestation of the beast will be finally destroyed by Christ himself. So don't marvel at this woman riding on the beast. Christ will slay the beast and the woman. A second reason you shouldn't marvel at the beastly worldly culture is all the earth dwellers marvel at her. So those whose name aren't written in the book of life, the unbelievers, they're the ones who marvel. The earth dwellers are impressed by the beast each time it emerges with power. People were in awe of King Nebuchadnezzar. Why? The golden statue, all the promises that he made. He built this mighty the gardens of Babylon and these pleasure centers. He promised the people what they wanted and gave it to them. People stood in awe of the rise of Roman emperors who pretended to be men of the people. They tapped into fears and patriotism of the people and they promised to fix their problems. They had gladiatorial games. They built Roman roads, a mighty economy, conquered other nations, expanded the borders, gave the people what they wanted. The people stood in awe of the rise of Hitler and Stalin. Those were not bad names when they first appeared on, on the scene of history. They were celebrated and loved because these were the saviors of the people from those who would want to steal their identity from them. Finally, here's someone who's going to make sure we get the things we need, a, a human strong man. Now please look with me at verse 9. The angel says, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now, in John's day, this phrase seven mountains would be like in our day if, if I told you about the Big Apple. You know what the Big Apple is. It means one thing in our culture. It's New York City, right? Well, in John's day, the seven mountains was Rome. The city of seven hills. Seven mountains. This is a Roman Empire. The angel is saying that in John's day, the beast is a Roman Empire and worldly culture rides upon her. Then verse 10 says, they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Now we need, this you might think is getting confusing, but remember this, the numbers in Revelation are symbolic. They're symbols. And here's what I think this means based on uh, commentaries I've been reading. William Hendrickson, who I've offered uh, to you. Uh, G.K. Beale is another really good commentator. 
Um, and there are others as well. Uh, but the number seven refers to fullness or completeness. So this isn't seven literal kings. This is all the great kings of history. And what he's saying is five have already come. So many of this complete number of the kings of all history have already appeared. And one is. Which one is? It's, it's Rome. So five before Rome. So there's a bunch been before Rome. Now it's Rome today. But there's one that's not yet come. There's a final one coming. This is a great final kingdom of the Antichrist, which we've seen before. And he's there only for a little while because Christ comes and judges him. Then verse 11 says, As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. So what I think this is saying is that the future beast... The Antichrist is really the resurrected spirit of all the previous Babylons. Eight is a, day, is a number of resurrection in the Bible. Christ was raised on the eighth day. Eighth day feasts in the Old Testament anticipated Jesus, his death and his resurrection. Eight is a, raise, is a number of re- resurrection. And so this beast appears to be slain over and over and actually is slain all through history because all these great imperial forces and worldly cultures that ended in decadence and, the, and tyranny, they were defeated. They keep popping up again. They look like they're rising from the dead. They're mimicking Christ's resurrection and the people love it. People of the world say, rise, O strong man. Give me what I need and what I want. Make us into what we want to be. And they they look for kingdom, power, empire, strength, and glory in that strong man. We saw the same uh, wounded beast who was then healed in Revelation 13.3. It's the same idea. He appeared to die and then came back to life. The point is that Christ keeps judging tyrannical dictators and they arise again. Then we come to verses 12 and 13, which shows us how the beast gets its power. And this is really significant. It says, in the ten horns, and remember, numbers are metaphorical. So ten horns means power. A horn is power. So you think of an animal, you know, uh, in the Old Testament, what's what's a powerful animal, not only with teeth, but those that have horns that can gore you. And so horn refers to power. Don't think of like a horn that you blow. It's a horn of power. So these are ten powers. That is a, 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 a whole complete number of these powerful kings. It says, And the ten horns that you saw, saw are the ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour. So it's short, together with the beast. And this is looking ultimately to the final uh, tyranny at the end before Christ comes. That's only short. It's for a little while. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and their authority to the beast. So these, these ten kings are this. They're, they're lesser powers than, than the central power. They're lords and nobles, you know. And we, we, think in, uh, we might not think in those terms today, but just to give you an analogy, I'm not saying that this is America, but I'm telling you we got it in America. So, so just listen to this. We have lesser authorities that influence the central government, don't we? 
they, they exist. You have mighty business titans, rich people, powerful influencers of every kind, lesser powers. And what the Bible is saying is that the cultural kings or the lesser powers give their power to the tyrant, a central authority. Why do they do that? Well, because people love strong government. They think, because they think that then they can influence it and make themselves a better life, line their own pockets. They think they can manipulate a powerful central government. They idolize this worldly empire. They long for a paradise culture where they can live in peace and happiness, indulging their worldly pleasures. They're willing to strengthen a central power to that end. Then verses 14 and 15 says that the powers of corrupt culture always eventually attack Christ and his people. So what's the end of this? All the powers that be, the great power, the lesser powers, they all collude ultimately to attack Jesus and his people. This is a cycle through history. Verse 14, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings and those that are with him are called chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So here we see this worldly empire is really an empire ultimately of power. It ends in power taking over everything because worldliness and sin seeks power in the end and then it crushes God's people persecutes the church, infiltrates and corrupts the church with immorality. Happen, this is happening the world over. Even now, this is going on. But eventually, Christ brings judgment upon the nation because of the harm the cultural powers are doing to the church. But here's the interesting thing. How does Jesus judge this? It tells us. How does he judge the prostitute, the worldly culture? It's really remarkable, verse 16, because it's a little shocking how Jesus brings his judgment. It says, And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. And they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her with fire. What's the way God judges a decadent culture? Tyrants rise up and they destroy the society over which they rule. That's what happened in Babylon. That's what happened in Greece. That's what happened in Persia before. That's what happened in Rome. Sin and selfishness brings destruction. When you put great power into the hands of great sinners, you get great destruction. Tyrants don't like to be ruled by their cultures. Who's the boss? They don't want to be ridden by the prostitute. They enjoy it for a while. And then they turn and they crush the society that rides them. He turns and murders her. Every empire built on worldly pleasure turns to tyranny and eventually it comes falling down. And here's the thing. Verse 17 says, God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. God does it. He certainly does it. He raises up tyrants and destroys wicked societies. That's what this says. 
God was behind the collapse of Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union. It was prophesied in Daniel when the rock who is Jesus smashed all the previous kingdoms. God is the one who brings wicked worldly societies into judgment. What should we do in light of this passage? Well, first of all, we should realize that God is in control and that what has been is and will be and that God has a purpose that history isn't pointless. It's going to an end. That God saves his people. He purifies his people. He keeps his own to the end. That Christ brings judgment and he rescues his own. He does the fighting, not us. He goes to war. But may I submit that this passage is is a great reason to look to Jesus. Consider what Christ is like. Just think of him. First, remember that unlike this prostitute, Christ's beauty is inward, not merely outward. Do you remember Nicodemus was attracted to the Lord Jesus because it says of of the works that he did. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says that on the outside, Christ had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Christ's beauty is found in his character, his love, his holiness, his justice, and his goodness. Why is Jesus beautiful? He's true God with all authority and all power and true man who is humble and tender and meek. This is why he's attractive. The Lord Jesus is, as God, powerful to save, but as man, humble to sympathize with and receive poor sinners who come to him. That's true beauty. That's true attraction. This is how Christ attracts us to himself, who he is in his per- person and all that he's done in his work. He bled and died for wretched worldly people like us, that the world is infiltrating my heart and yours to some degree at least, or maybe fully, God forbid. But if, if you're of the world, he still opens his arms and says, come, come, just cast yourself upon me. I will save, not society, not culture. I will, he says. So Christ has true beauty. Second, Christ's words are truthful and loving, not seductive. Jesus never seduces you. He never tricks you. He never lies to you. He never manipulates you. He never promises you one thing and then gives you another. Instead, he tells you the truth. Sometimes his truth is so clear, it's shocking and uncomfortable. But it's the truth. The truth of Christ's wisdom often stings, but then he mercifully heals you with the balm of his grace the gospel of his love, the power of his redemption. Proverbs 8 speaks of lady wisdom. This woman of wisdom in Proverbs is adorned with wise words to show us what Christ is like and to teach us how to live. Proverbs 8.22 says that God the Father possessed her at the beginning of creation, which means She is a type of Christ. Did you know that lady wisdom, a female figure, is a type of Christ in the Old Testament? Adorned with wisdom and glory. And Christ's loving words of wisdom not only show you what he is like and that he is your wisdom as a free gift, 
but teach you how to be holy and satisfied in him, to show you his beauty, to teach you how to think and live in such a messed up and confused world that we live in, to show you how to know God, to love him and to love others. So Christ's words are truthful and loving, not seductive. But third, Christ's cup is full of living water, not impurity. There's nothing impure or revolting in Jesus, nothing sour or rotten in his cup. The Lord Jesus said in John 4, verses 13 and 14, Everyone who drinks of this water will never be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water, or will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In John seven thirty seven, Jesus gives the appeal, and this is to you. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Oh, beloved, Christ's cup will quench your thirst. He is life. His water will wash away your sins. His water will quench the thirst of your heart. You were made for him. And if you come to him, he'll never let you go. And so Christ's cup is full of living water, not impurities. Fourth, Christ dies for you and does not murder you or harm you. The woman and the beast will harm you. She'll persecute you. She will use you even if she's not persecuting you and she will destroy you. And ultimately the beast devours the woman and the whole thing collapses. But Jesus dies for all who come to him in simple faith. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He dies for us. While we were sinners, stinking in our worldliness, repulsive and unattractive in ourselves, he so loved us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died in our place. We deserve death, but he died as a substitute to take the punishment that we deserve. Our sins go to him on the cross. His righteousness comes to us. And God accepts us, and we are reconciled to God through what Jesus did alone. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. You want to know what love looks like? You look there at the cross. He never murders. People who were murdering him on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. He dies for murderers. Beloved, don't look to an earthly strong man. Don't look to yourself. Don't look to worldliness or sinful pleasure. They're all lies from the devil. Jesus alone saves. He alone rose from the dead. He alone will return and consummate his eternal kingdom. And so won't you look unto him and be saved? all the ends of the earth, for he is God and there is no other. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are the Lord of history, that you are a God of goodness, justice, and that you even do bring your judgment upon the wicked. Lord, we tremble at that because we know the evil that lies within our own hearts. 
And we certainly don't gloat over or long for the destruction of the wicked, but we, long, we, want, we want to know you and we long for you. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to know more of your bounty and grace in Jesus, that if anyone in here doesn't know Christ, that they would flee to him and find mercy and learn from him how to live in this world that is. Lord, strengthen us all who believe. Help us to repent, to develop even more tender consciences, to know more of your love and to love others as you have first loved us, to live in this world as you have called us until you return. In Jesus' name, amen. Save our name from the lips of sinners.